Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I had the honor on the evening of the 11th instant to receive from the hands of the Secretary of War your favor of the 7th, announcing that you had, with the advice and consent of the Senate, appointed me, quote, Lieutenant General and Commander-in-Chief of all the armies raised, or to be raised, for the service of the U.S. I cannot express how greatly affected I am at this new proof of public confidence and the highly flattering manner in which you have been pleased to make the communication. At the same time, I must not conceal from you my earnest wish that the choice had fallen upon a man less declined in years and better qualified to encounter the usual vicissitudes of war. Satisfied that you have sincerely wished and endeavored to avert war and exhaust it to the last drop, the cup of reconciliation, we can with pure hearts appeal to heaven for the justice of our cause and may confidently trust the final result to that kind providence who has heretofore and so often signally favored the people of these United States. Thinking in this manner and feeling how incumbent it is upon every person of every description to contribute at all times to his country's welfare, and especially in a moment like the present, when everything we hold dear and sacred is so seriously threatened, I have finally determined to accept the commission of Commander-in-Chief of the Armies of the United States, with the reserve only that I shall not be called into the field until the army is in a situation to require my presence, or it becomes indispensable by the urgency of circumstances. On July 8, 1798, Secretary of War James McHenry boarded a southbound mail stagecoach in Philadelphia. As described by McHenry's biographer Karen Robbins, quote, The trip was long, hot, and dusty, but the matter was too important to trust to the unreliable mail system. McHenry carried a message from the President of the United States that he was personally to deliver to the Master of Mount Vernon Plantation on the banks of the Potomac. On the 11th, McHenry arrived to formally request that George Washington assume command of the armies of the United States. Welcome, dear listener, to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. The decision to name the former president to head up the nation's military forces came as a surprise to many, at least officially. Even Washington was surprised by the news. Before McHenry's arrival, Washington had learned of his nomination and of the Senate's unanimous confirmation in the newspaper. Though, as we noted in the previous episode, Adams and Washington had been corresponding, and Adams had asserted that he, quote, must tap Washington sometimes for advice. This was a level of commitment many degrees higher than Washington might have wished. As Abigail Adams wrote to her sister a few days later, it, quote, was one of those strokes which the prospect and exigency of the times required, and which the president determined upon without consultation. It, however, meets with universal approbation and will content more hearts than any other possible appointment. Indeed, astoundingly, 
Even the current senior officer of the U.S. Army, General James Wilkinson, who Washington would be replacing at the top, and who had been highly upset at having been passed over for the top post by Anthony Wayne back in 1792, does not appear to have been resentful over Washington's appointment. If the nation was to end up back at war, it seems that Adams was correct in his estimation that the majority felt more comforted by the thought of Washington being at the helm of the military. There was at least one person, though, who was not surprised by the nomination. Alexander Hamilton wrote to George Washington on May 19, 1798, about the current crisis in foreign affairs and informed Washington that, quote, in such a state of public affairs, it is impossible not to look up to you and to wish that your influence could, in some proper mode, be brought into direct action. A little later in the letter, Hamilton wrote that, quote, You ought also to be aware, my dear sir, that in the event of an open rupture with France, the public voice will again call you to command the armies of your country. And though all who are attached to you will, from attachment, as well as public considerations, deplore an occasion which should once more tear you from that repose to which you have so good a right. Yet it is the opinion of all those with whom I converse that you will be compelled to make the sacrifice. Washington would respond to Hamilton that he had not made up his mind how he would answer should such a call to service come, as he felt that there were others just as capable as he, and that he felt, quote, that a preference might better be given to a man more in his prime. Should he be called to service and agree to take command again, he did assert, quote, that I should like, previously to taking command, to know who would be my coadjutors, and whether you, i.e. Hamilton, would be disposed to take an active part. Would the ambitious Hamilton assume a prominent post in the army? Well, before the week was out, and remember, The letter had to travel from Mount Vernon to New York City, so it was pretty quickly after he received Washington's letter. Hamilton was writing to his former chief that, of course, quote, if I'm invited to a station in which the service I may render may be proportioned to the sacrifice I am to make, I shall be willing to go into the army. If you command, the place in which I should hope to be most useful is that of Inspector General with a command in the line. This I would accept. Keep all of this, Washington's desire to know who the senior officers under his command would be, and Hamilton's eagerness to play the role of Washington's right-hand man in the back of your mind, dear listener, as we're going to shift gears for just a minute and jump across the pond to catch up with developments in France. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. While working to divide and conquer the three-man peace commission from the U.S., Talleyrand had been plotting towards larger geopolitical goals. On February 14, 1798, while General Napoleon Bonaparte was off inspecting troops at La Manche, known to the English-speaking world as the English Channel, for the potential invasion of Britain, Talleyrand was submitting a plan to the Directory for the conquest of Egypt. Now, I'm sure you're asking yourself, why in the world France would want to divert resources from a strike against Britain after the Battle of Camperdown? 
Talleyrand's justification was, quote, prejudicial acts carried out against French businessmen throughout Europe and two humiliating public beatings of the French consul general in Egypt. However, a more likely explanation comes in Talleyrand's examination of possible consequences of such action. At the time, as noted previously, the directory was seeking new sources of revenue, and Egypt had, as noted by the French foreign minister, quote, one of the most fortunate climates in the world, and an already existing large agricultural operation. It didn't seem that France could look forward to getting Saint-Domingue back to full production to be the money-making engine that it had been before the revolution anytime soon, so possibly Egypt could fill that space. Meanwhile, as noted in episode 1.30, Ottoman control over North Africa was tenuous at best, and it was unlikely that there would be much opposition from that weakened empire to the move. Plus, the move on Egypt would reestablish France's reputation as a major colonial power, a status that had been weakened by its defeat in the Seven Years' War decades prior. Napoleon, upon his return from his inspection, filed his own report expressing his grave concerns about the possibility of an invasion of Britain being successful, and instead recommending that the Directory consider either an invasion of the German electorate of Hanover, which was ruled by British King George III, or an expedition to quote-unquote the Orient. The Directory opted for the latter and ordered Napoleon to Egypt. Meanwhile, Elbridge Gerry had kept up his attempts to avoid war in Paris. However, he had laid out some ground rules. He informed Talleyrand after the departure of his fellow commissioners that he was remaining as a private citizen, but would try to help facilitate a peaceful resolution of the lingering issues between the U.S. and France. As May 1798 went on, Talleyrand was growing more amenable to the idea of peace, asserting that he would send a diplomatic emissary to the U.S. to negotiate, as well as agreeing to withdraw his request for a loan and for France to assume debts due to American citizens for the seizure of ships. However, these overtures were taken back off the table after May 27th, when newspapers in Paris reported the publishing of the XYZ papers in American newspapers and the backlash that had resulted from their publication. Early July would bring Talleyrand a report from a French official who had just returned from the U.S. of the military preparations being put in place by the American government, and Talleyrand would soon do yet another about-face. On July 15th, he wrote to Gary that the Directory government would like a reconciliation with the U.S., and in the next week, requested that negotiations resume in Paris with the promise that the French would not seek either a loan or an apology for Adams's previous contentious remarks. Gary, however, was making plans to depart from France and would leave Paris bound for Le Havre on July 26th. The next day, Talleyrand approached the Directory, urging them to take steps to walk back some of the more contentious policies that they had put into place. The Directory, in turn, would pass a decree on the 31st, quote, to limit the role played by French privateers in the West Indies. The French were finally ready to step back from the brink of conflict. But the question remained as to whether news of these developments would reach the U.S. in time to avert an actual declaration of war. Washington would confer with McHenry for three days at Mount Vernon before writing the letter from which this episode's intro quote was extracted, formally accepting the commission. However, as we stated earlier, Washington was concerned about who would serve under him. 
For those of you who are acute listeners, you may have noticed earlier that I said that Washington officially expressed surprise at the news of his nomination as commander-in-chief. Unofficially, though, Washington had been more aware of discussions going on behind the scenes in Philadelphia than the current president knew. Unbeknownst to Adams, a member of his cabinet was already trying to influence Washington's decision of officers to appoint under his command. Before McHenry left Philadelphia, Secretary of State Pickering wrote a letter to General Washington urging him to appoint Hamilton as his second-in-command. Boldly and quite falsely, as it turns out, Pickering assured Washington that, quote, even Colonel Hamilton's political enemies, I believe, would repose more confidence in him than in any military character that can be placed in competition with him. This need for confidence was supported by a letter from Hamilton that, Seemingly without Adams's knowledge, McHenry carried with him to Mount Vernon, in which the former Treasury Secretary informed the general that, quote, the president has no relative ideas, and his prepossessions on military subjects in reference to such a point are of the wrong sort. It is easy for us to have a good army, but the selection requires care. It is necessary to inspire confidence in the efficient part of those who may incline to military service. If you accept the nomination as commander of the army, it will be conceived that the arrangement is yours, and you will be responsible for it in reputation. Basically, Hamilton was saying that Adams had no clue what he was doing militarily and needed Washington to organize the whole shebang for him, including, of course, choosing the top officers. Hint, hint, top officers. Hint, hint. Remember, He had already told Washington in June his preference for a position as, quote, inspector general with a command in the line. I'm almost surprised he didn't write out the commission himself and include it with his letter. Hamilton needn't have worried. Washington had already picked him out for our top post as he wrote to Pickering on the morning before McHenry's arrival at Mount Vernon. However, he would have another officer as his second in command, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney. That's right, the former envoy who was still yet to return from France would be named as Washington's second. As Washington noted, Pinckney was, quote, an officer of high military reputation, fond of the profession, spirited, active, and judicious, and much advanced in the estimation of the public by his late conduct as minister and envoy at Paris. And Pinckney was already senior over Hamilton from their service during the Revolutionary War. Hamilton could be, quote, inspector general with a command in the line. That was, after all, the office that Hamilton wanted, right? Well, Pickering was not the only one that Washington had been in contact with prior to McHenry's arrival. McHenry himself had been in frequent correspondence with Washington since the latter's departure from Mount Vernon in the prior year, and in a letter written on June 26, marked confidential, had already asked the former president, quote, will you? May we flatter ourselves that in a crisis so awful and important as war with France, accept the command of all our armies. Washington replied on July 4th with a follow-up letter on July 5th that, while he would accept, as, quote, it would be difficult for me at any time to remain an idle spectator under the plea of age or retirement, he would have conditions. The one condition that will most concern us is that, as, quote, the appointment of the general staff are all important, insomuch that if I'm looked to as the commander-in-chief, I must be allowed to choose such as will be agreeable to me. By the time McHenry was ready to leave, 
Washington had changed his mind about who he wanted as his second-in-command. Pinckney had been supplanted by, take a guess, dear listener, that's right, Hamilton. Washington desired for Hamilton to serve as both first major general and inspector general. Then, under Hamilton, Pinckney, followed by the former Secretary of War and former General Henry Knox. Now, we've already discussed this from the viewpoint of Washington and Knox in episode 1.35, the Washington Post-Presidency episode. If you haven't listened to that one yet, I highly recommend going to check it out. In order to avoid covering too much already trodden ground, I'm going to focus more on the perspectives of Adams, Pinckney, and Hamilton moving forward. With that said, let's turn to the president first. Adams had sent along with McHenry some recommendations of possible contenders for top posts in the Army. Naturally, the usual suspects from the Revolutionary War, Hamilton, Pinckney, Knox, Light Horse Harry Lee, Benjamin Lincoln, were in the mix. However, Adams did include some surprising proposals. First, Horatio Gates. Though I was only able to cover it briefly in episode 1.2, Gates had been Washington's main rival for the top command during the Revolution, and indeed had been involved in the Conway Cabal that had aimed to oust Washington for Gates back in late 1777, early 1778. There was no way Washington would appoint Gates to be an army messenger, much less as one of his senior officers. Adams also put forward prominent Democratic-Republicans Aaron Burr and Frederick Muhlenberg as an attempt to achieve bipartisanship during this national crisis. However, that was a no-go for Washington as well. He'd only have Federalists in his top command. Adams also made a play for nepotism by proposing his son-in-law William Smith as a brigadier general. That's right, the good-for-nothing William Smith, who was a failure at business and had left Nabby and the kids with no word of where he was or what he was doing. That guy. Maybe Adams figured that some time with Washington would straighten him out. Washington wasn't going for that, though. No, sir. At the end of their conference at Mount Vernon, Washington sent his list back with McHenry to take to Adams, and the list went Hamilton, Pinckney, and Knox, in that order. As we've noted before, Adams and Hamilton did not see eye to eye. Adams understood fully what a Hamilton appointment as second-in-command meant. Washington was well advanced in years. If the Army actually had to take the field, and indeed for preparations in general, it wasn't likely that Washington would be leading the effort. He would defer to his second-in-command to do more of the legwork and to actually take the field if need be. In effect, being second-in-command was de facto being in command, and the last thing Adams wanted was Hamilton in command of an army. In terms of precedence, there was a strong argument to be made. Knox and Pinckney had outranked Hamilton in their respective last services. Thus, if they were being called back into service, they should return at the order of precedence that they left. Certainly, that was what Knox felt when he heard about it. But what could Adams do? Well, he took the best course of action that he saw before him. As Congress was getting ready to adjourn, he called the Senate back into a special session to consider the Army nominations. And on July 18th, he sent the three names to the Senate along with the other eight names Washington had recommended for lower positions, and also slipping in William Smith's name as an adjutant general, a nomination the Senate rejected. With the top three, he sent the names in the order that Washington had ranked them and hoped that the body would reverse the order of precedence in the confirmation process. They did not. 
And thus, a week later, Hamilton accepted his appointment as Inspector General and Second-in-Command of the Army. After the votes on the Army offices, the Senate adjourned, and Adams proceeded with plans to travel back to Quincy with John and Abigail departing from Philadelphia on July 25th. Now, it's not going to be often that I'm going to speak of a president leaving the national capital for home as a critical moment in the presidency, but in this case, it is apropos. First, as they were leaving Philadelphia, another bout of yellow fever was just getting started. More on that in a later episode. More critical to our narrative today are the thoughts that President Adams was leaving the city with. John Furling, in his biography of John Adams, marks the arrival of McHenry at the president's house with the news of the appointments as the point when Adams, quote, concluded that even Washington, the most revered man in America, was but a puppet of Hamilton, a conjecture that Adams had heard whispered about but had previously refused to believe. He also now came to see Hamilton as a most dangerous man, both to the nation and to himself. Some of Furling's evidence to this relies on later testimony, but it does seem that this is the time when Adams starts suspecting Hamilton of something, and, as we'll soon see, he would not prove to be quite as willing and eager to bow down and accept second place to Washington from here on out. It's pure speculation, but one has to wonder whether Adams envisioned this return to Quincy as an opportunity to clear his head and get a clearer vision of what was going on. Perhaps he thought the distance would help him get perspective. There would be a price to pay, however, for this space. And this, dear listener, will be one of the key themes for the remainder of the Adams presidency. For now, though, let's rejoin the president upon his arrival at Peacefield. Abigail had secretly arranged a huge surprise for her husband. An entire wing had been added to the house without his knowledge. Talk about a romantic gesture. As someone who has visited Peacefield, I do have to admit that it is rather impressive. As described by David McCullough, quote, An entire wing with a spacious parlor and a library above had been added to the east end, and the whole house new painted inside and out. She had doubled the house's size, paying for it out of money she saved from household expenses at Philadelphia. As it turns out, the secret had been spoiled by a friend from Quincy, who, while visiting in Philadelphia in late June, had spilled the beans. Adams, however, had proven delighted with the project that his wife had undertaken under his nose. Unfortunately, they were not able to enjoy it as they had wished, for Abigail had fallen ill during the journey and had taken to the bed as soon as they arrived. Adams wrote back to cabinet members that she was, quote, very weak and, quote, extremely low and in great danger. So now we have the president who, just a couple of months prior, was so worried about his ability to lead the nation into a war that he suggested that his predecessor take charge again, now facing the prospect of losing his beloved wife. In other folks, this might have gotten him into a state of inaction, but not John Adams. Whether his nose was out of joint at being dictated to by Washington or at the political necessity of giving an army appointment to Hamilton, Adams seemed more fired up than ever as he sent off letters from Quincy. After receiving a request from Secretary of War McHenry that he be authorized, quote, to call effectually to my aid the Inspector General, i.e. Hamilton, and likewise General Knox, and to charge them with the management of particular branches of the service, and with McHenry admitting that he had, quote, already taken the liberty to request the Inspector General to occupy himself in preparing for materials from which I have furnished him a system of tactics and discipline. 
Adams fired off an opening salvo to McHenry on August 14th when he wrote, quote, Calling any other general officers into service at present will be attended with difficulty unless the rank were settled. In my opinion, as the matter now stands, General Knox is legally entitled to rank next to General Washington, and no other arrangement will give satisfaction. If General Washington is of this opinion and will consent to it, you may call him into actual service as soon as you please. The consequence of this will be that Pinckney must rank before Hamilton. If it shall be consented that the rank shall be Knox, Pinckney, and Hamilton, you may call the latter two into immediate service when you please. Any other plan will occasion long delay and much confusion. You may depend upon it. The five New England states will not patiently submit to the humiliation that has been mediated for them. This was along the same lines of complaint that Knox sent to Washington on July 29th when he wrote, quote, New England, which must furnish the majority of the army if one shall be raised, will be without a major general or have the junior one. Whether they will possess such a sense of inferiority as to bear such a state of things patiently, or whether their zeal and confidence will thereby be excited, time will discover. Both New Englanders were willing to cite both precedent and geographic balance in order to make their case. In what seems like a possible case of he doth protest too much, McHenry wrote back to Adams on the 20th, assuring him, quote, that I had no agency direct or indirect before or while at Mount Vernon in deciding his, i.e. Washington's mind, either to the choice or the arrangement of the rank of those selected, and asserting that, quote, I cannot help apprehending some disagreeable consequences to the public service should a different relative grade be now known to be decisively contemplated. Adams replied by citing precedent provided by Knox on rules governing military ranks that had been enacted in 1778 and wrote back to McHenry that, quote, My opinion is and always has been clear that as the law now stands, the order of nomination or of recording has no weight or effect, but that officers appointed on the same day, in whatever order, have a right to rank according to antecedent services. He then puffed up his chest and reminded McHenry that, quote, the power and authority is in the president. I am willing to exert this authority at this moment and to be responsible for the exercise of it. And nods towards McHenry's assertions of undue influence when he writes that, quote, there's been too much intrigue in this business, both with General Washington and me. If I shall ultimately be the dupe of it, I am much mistaken in myself. It was tough talk, but the wagon circled around Hamilton when the letter was received in the seat of government. With the president absent, the cabinet deliberated on how to approach the situation. At one point, a joint letter was considered. Washington also chimed in from Mount Vernon, explaining his decision and reminding the president that he was under the impression that he was to be given a free hand to run the army as he would like. Oh, and by the way, since at this point it was nearing the end of September and no recruitment had been done yet because this drama was still going on, let's settle it sooner rather than later so that we can get to the actual business of putting together an army. Historian John Furling, however, cites Oliver Walcott's letter of September 17th as being the one that brought about a resolution. 
The other cabinet members felt that Walcott, as a fellow New Englander, could best address Adams's concerns about Hamilton being named to the second highest post in the Army. Walcott reminded Adams that in his letter to Washington of July 6th, informing him of his appointment as Commander-in-Chief, Adams had asked to, quote, obtain his, i.e. Washington's, advice in the formation of a list of officers. Washington had abided by that request in an appropriate manner and had, quote, never disclosed a wish to interfere with any of the powers constitutionally vested in the president. Moreover, it had been Adams who had submitted the names as they had been given by Washington to the Senate. No one had held a gun to his head. Walcott assured Adams that, quote, I am persuaded that no personal considerations distinct from the public interest have influenced General Washington, and it is impossible that the public should be governed by any but views of the general welfare in awarding the second rank to General Hamilton. He even addressed Knox's citing the rules of 1778, with Walcott informing the president that, quote, this merely determines the rank of commissions in the 88 battalions ordered to be raised during the war and was not still applicable to the current army. Walcott asserted that, quote, I am no soldier and no judge of military questions except so far as they are capable of being tested by the principles of common sense, and in doing so, serves to remind Adams that he is no soldier either. But guess who is? That's right, Washington. He's the expert that Adams himself brought into the fold with the appointment as commander-in-chief. So how about trusting your own expert already? While this wasn't necessarily what Adams wanted to hear, it convinced him to sign the commissions. He wrote back to Walcott in a letter that may not have been sent off at all, but rather might have served as an opportunity to vent. Certainly, Adams was rather candid in it. He admitted that when he received Walcott's letter, he, quote, read it over and over again with all the attention I am master of. He then confessed that, quote, the long-continued dangerous sickness of my best friend, i.e. Abigail, and her still precarious destiny have thrown my mind into a state of depression, agitation, and anxiety, which will not admit of a full discussion of the various points on which you and I appear to differ in opinion. Though he would later be known for not holding his tongue, this level of candor at this point in Adams's life makes me wonder whether he ever intended to send this letter, and suggests that it is likely it was not sent. Adams was admitting to being mentally and emotionally unable to make a complete argument on a matter that he had pressed. All of this is very out of character. He conceded certain points, but towards the end descended into a rant about Hamilton, highlighting many points that he would, even decades after, return to in his criticism of the former Treasury Secretary. And I quote, If I should consent to the appointment of Hamilton as second in rank, I should consider it as the most responsible action of my whole life and the most difficult to justify. Hamilton is not a native of the United States, but a foreigner, and I believe has not resided longer, at least not much longer, in North America than Albert Gallatin. His rank in the late army was comparatively very low. His merits with a party are the merits of John Calvin. Some think on Calvin, heaven's own spirit fell, while others deem him instrument of hell. His talents I respect, his character I leave. I know that Knox has no popular character even in Massachusetts. I know, too, that Hamilton has no popular character in any part of America. 
but in the end, he washed his hands of it. Adams signed all the commissions on the same day and left the matter to Washington to sort out, knowing what order the general was likely to put the trio in rank. Then, as an anticlimax, though Washington had been concerned that Pinckney might have a similar reaction to Knox at being ranked under Hamilton, when Pinckney arrived in the U.S. in late October and learned the news, he wrote to McHenry that he, quote, knew that his, i.e. Hamilton's, talents in war were great and, quote, would with pleasure serve under him. The now General Alexander Hamilton would thus become the de facto head of the U.S. Army, a post which would give him an opportunity to reestablish some legitimacy and respect and to finally get some military triumphs under his belt that could possibly prove useful to him in future endeavors. <clears throat> Presidential run. Though it may have seemed like a checkmate at the time, Little could anyone have imagined how much Adams could still undermine Hamilton's ability to claim military glory for himself. After all, what good is being the head of an army if there's no enemy to be fought? Meanwhile, Adams was not the only one seeking some comeuppance against Hamilton and his arch-federalist allies. The story is far from over, dear listeners, as we shall see next time in an episode I'd like to call The Opposition Strikes Back. Till then, if you have any questions or comments about this or any episode, drop me a line via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or connect with me via Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, or on Instagram at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word. Sources used in this episode, as well as past episodes, and all the ways that you can subscribe to the podcast to ensure that you don't miss a single episode, can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. As always, I thank you so much for listening. Take care, dear friends. Until next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily.